0: Well, the last few weeks we've been talking about the church and who is the church or what is the church. And actually, if you go back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament talks about Israel or the people of God. Whereas the New Testament oftentimes talks about disciples as being those in the church. Or even when Paul wrote his letter to the various churches that he wrote to, saints, Now, you might be looking around at some of the people in this church saying, I don't know about saints around here. But really what Paul is saying when he writes to the various churches is to the saints of God, which tells us something about how our lives are meant to be. That we are meant to be different. We are meant to stand out, set apart, which is what the word holy means. And I wonder sometimes, do we really understand that we are to be different from the world? That our life is modeled after the Lord? That when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we're also transformed by the Holy Spirit? It isn't just about head knowledge. It's about our hearts receiving the gospel and the Holy Spirit working in us so much so that we are transformed. You know, before we get into the scriptures for today, I have to tell you my quiet time over the course of the past week, I've been reading from Matthew chapter 13. And if you don't know much about Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13 has a number of parables in it that refer to the gospel and the kingdom of God and also the church. How the church is to be distinct from the world, different from the world, and how the church, when you look at the church, how the church is in reality. And two parables in particular, both agricultural in nature, that Jesus talks about when he talks about it. The first is the the field he talks about later. He explains it to his apostles. The field is the world. And he sows the seed, the gospel, the good news. That is meant to break in our hearts and in our lives. That when we really understand this gospel, we recognize That there is something new about us. There's life. And that we are meant to grow and we're meant to produce fruit. But the enemy comes into the field at night and sows seeds that become weeds. And the weeds grow up next to the people of God in the world. And in some cases that can have an impact on the people of God, which we see in the other parable. We'll get to that in a moment. But you know, so often, so often, when we look at the world and the people of the world, you get this idea, particularly if you listen to what is said in the news, you listen to people, most of the time, you'll get this mindset, everybody is basically good. Have you ever heard that? Everybody is basically a good person. You know the reality is? That's not what the scripture says, and I certainly don't buy it. Everyone is not basically good. The reality is we're all sinners and we all fail. We're all tainted by sin. It doesn't mean that we're totally evil. It means we're all tainted by sin. And because of that, we need a Savior. Because we can't save ourselves, we're not good enough. That's why Jesus came. That's what the seed of the gospel is about. When we recognize we're sinners and we confess our sin and we repent and we come to salvation through Christ, then we're transformed and we begin to blossom and grow. But look at the world around you. There is plenty of evidence for there being evil people out there. You've got people who are incredibly violent people. You've got people that exploit people. That do evil things to people. You've got people that are dishonest. And all of those by their lives have an impact on others and have an impact on the world that is destructive. Jesus calls them the sons of the devil. That is to say that their hearts are not given over to the Lord, they're given over to evil. Primarily because it will benefit them. They're doing what they want. They're satisfying their own desires. And we grow up in a world where there are people like that. Just look at the news. Look at the news nationally, look at the news internationally, and you will see people like that. And if we allow the culture or the world to affect us so much, we can have that faith choked out. And that takes me to the other parable. The other agricultural parable that Jesus tells in this parable, the parable of the sower. Most of you know that parable. It's also known as the parable of the soils. That there's four different kinds of soil. The first soil is the rock, the rocky soil, where the seed never penetrates. The gospel never gets there, never breaks into one's heart and life. You can even be, by the way, in the church and be that person. Where the gospel really never penetrates your heart. Maybe on the outside you look like soil. Because you're going to church, because you live a moral life for the most part in your mind at least. But you've never really had the gospel penetrate your heart and transform your mind and your life. And there are people like that in the church. Maybe because it's part of their family culture. Maybe because they have to go because of a parent or a spouse. And then you've got the seed that's sown in the soil where it's shallow ground. And we've seen people like this in the church, most of us, where they come into church and they're excited and they're enthusiastic, and maybe they have a conversion experience where emotionally they respond to the gospel and they're all fired up for a while and then pff, they're gone. Because they have no root, as Scripture says, they haven't grown deeper in their faith. And they certainly haven't gotten to the place where they're producing fruit. And then you've got the third kind of soil, which is the, ones that, the one that does grow up amongst the weeds. And we are so encultured. That is to say, we are bombarded by what comes at us in the culture in terms of the values of the culture and the morals of the culture And we can acquiesce and we can actually have the culture eventually choke out an alive faith. That we become so compromised it's hard to distinguish us from the world in how we live, in how we spend our time, what our values are, what we're pursuing in life. It looks the same as the rest of the world, people who may not have any faith. And then there's the plant as Jesus said, that produces fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. In other words, there's going to be such a distinction with your life that it's not going to be a question that you're a Christian because your life is different, because you reflect the nature of Christ. You're producing fruit. Fruit that blesses other people. Fruit that glorifies God. It's not about you. It's about others. That's what fruit's about. Now, just in raw numbers, I mean, particularly if you're a math person, an accountant, an engineer, what's the percentage when you got four different kinds of soils and one produces fruit? One out, of about, one out of four, right? I mean, that's probably not how it exactly works out in the church, or at least we hope not. But that's a scary prospect when you think about it. That when Jesus lays it out there that way... The one parable he told us about the world. This parable is about people where the seed may or may not get in, may or may not produce a plant, or may or may not produce fruit. And what he's saying, in effect, is a small percentage really produces fruit. A small percentage really goes beyond themselves. A small percentage is more about just the plant. It's about the fruit. It's about blessing other people. It's about reaching out with the gospel. It's about reproduction because the fruit falls and the seeds get in the ground and more plants grow. That's what the church is meant to be. All of us It's bearing fruit when we really understand it. That's what Jesus is driving at in these parables in Matthew chapter 13. And we see that both in the Old Testament with the people of God and we see it in the New Testament when you get to John chapter 6, which is our reading for today. You see all the different reactions that we're told about in this particular parable. Take, for example, the people of God. Those who were called out of Egypt because that's the setting of Deuteronomy. They responded to God's call. So in other words, something stuck. At least they wanted to be part of this this amazing God who does all these plagues and miracles and gets them out and separates the Red Sea and destroys Pharaoh's army. They said, I want to be a part of that people. So at least they respond to his call. Then they come out and what happens? Three days later, they're grumbling. A few days after that, they're grumbling again. Not long after that, they're building a golden calf, an idol. An idol. I mean, over and over again, what we see is this immediate reaction where they're really excited, but they have no root. We see people that the cares of the world, what other people have, choked out. We see exactly what Jesus is talking about. Pharaoh hardened his heart the hard soil. And then Jesus, when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and the people begin to follow him, we see the same. People that begin to question, they follow them because they got their bellies filled. That's what we talked about last week. But they're not really interested in having a transformed life. They have no root. They didn't grow. They never got to the point of producing fruit. What are the people of God meant to be about? When we talk about ourselves being the people of God see, God tries to show that first in the Old Testament with the people of Israel. He calls them out. He eventually begins to provide for their needs. And then eventually brings them to Mount Sinai where God gives them the Ten Commandments. And what he's basically saying in effect is, if you're going to respond to my call, if you're going to follow me, it means you need to trust me for your provision. And oh, by the way, here's some guidelines for you to live by. This points to what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And these are just some hooks for you to hang that on. Now when we get to the book of Deuteronomy, the last book of Moses, the first five are called the book of Moses. It's laid out like a covenant document. It is a relational document. You need to understand this is not about law. It's not about being moral. It's not about being legalistic. It's about a relationship. But the relationship has direction to it, guidelines to it. That's what God is saying. I know what love is because I am love. And I want to show you what love looks like. So Deuteronomy chapter 5 is this covenant document is unfolding Moses reiterates, here's the Ten Commandments, just to remind you about what it's about. That's Deuteronomy chapter 5. The next chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, if you really understand what the law is about, these commandments are about, it's about loving the Lord with the whole of your being. Jump to the New Testament. Jesus in John chapter 14 and 15 talks about... If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Same idea. See, love isn't just about romance. Love isn't just about what you think it should be about. Love isn't just about you getting your needs met, something that pleases you. God defines what love looks like so that we understand his kind of love, so that we understand Him and that we begin to live into this life. And the only way that we can do that, by the way, and Moses says it twice, is with humility. It is the only way that we can begin to understand and live this life, is with humility. That we empty ourselves. And we're so filled with him. You know, I don't know how many of you saw this this morning. I don't know how many of you get up and read the paper on Sunday morning, if you get up and read the paper at all. But the best place you can find wisdom, at least in the island packet, is in the comics. And, sorry. And the first little, uh, the first little scene in the comic Shoe, you know, with the birds... Mr. Shoemaker, what would you say is your best attribute? This person asks, shoe. He responds, besides being smart, witty, charming, and handsome, next frame, humility. See, most of us ideally like to think of ourselves as humble. But we're really not all about ourselves. And yet, what this comic says to me isn't just about his lack of humility, but the values that he's living for. And so much of our culture, so are we. Who doesn't want to be thought of as smart, as attractive, as successful? Or at least not stupid and ugly, right? Right? Who doesn't want to be thought of that way? Because we're so encultured to be mindful of what the values are in the culture. Constantly. And so what can happen is we can begin to live for those values. Unbeknownst to ourselves. We want our children to to have those values, to be important in the world. And so we begin to live as a family for that. And we can lose sight of the fact that the way to begin as a Christian, the way to grow as a Christian, is by emptying ourselves. Humility. In fact, the word humility, I've said this before, but the word humility, the root word is humus. Humus is soil. It's dirt. And not only is humus soil, but it's dirt that is composed of, if you will, decaying vegetables and plants and animals. Now just to plant a seed about that is our flesh is to die. When we understand who we are in Christ... Our flesh is to die. That we die to sin and we die to self. That we empty ourselves so the seed of the gospel can be planted. And then we're filled with the Holy Spirit and transformed. That's what Moses is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. And the way Moses says it in this particular section of scripture, look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Just for a moment. This entire commandment that I command you today, you must diligently observe so that you may live and increase. Isn't that interesting? Diligently observe. That this is meant to be a focus for your life. You're meant to live it out. The entire commandment Do you even know it? God's word. Because that's what he's saying. You know, it's really interesting. If you you look at Jesus at the very beginning of his public ministry, his life. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. This section right here he has not preached his first sermon yet the sermon on the mount he has not began to gather apostles and disciples around him he's not performed any miracles but rather the first thing he did after he was baptized was he went into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and when he came out he was vulnerable He was exhausted. And Satan comes to him and says, Hey, take care of your body. Take care of your needs. Turn this stone into bread. And Jesus responds by saying, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The very verse you find in this section of Scripture. In other words, right from the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus is basically saying, My flesh, my body might have needs right now. But I'm not going to compromise who I am or why I'm here. I'm not going to fall to your temptation because the most important thing is the Word of God. And living according to His call on my life. Do we understand that? So much of our lives we are preoccupied with meeting our needs in this world. At least surviving if not thriving in this world. How much are we really preoccupied with the Word of God? How much do we really give it the focus of our lives? Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born of human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. And became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In other words, emptied himself. Moses. Back to the reading in Deuteronomy. Moses. You know how Moses was raised, right? Everybody? He was raised in the school of Pharaoh. Who was Pharaoh? Pharaoh was the most powerful man of his time. But he was also considered as if a god. So Moses is being raised in this environment where he's made to think, you are not only really important, but you're your own God. And subconsciously, we can all live that way. That we're really important people, all of us. And not only that, we're the God of our own lives. Sounds like Adam and Eve, doesn't it? So what does Moses do when he finally gets to go out and about? He kills someone. What was he thinking? If you're the God of your own life, you can do what you want, right? If you're the most powerful man around, you can do what you want, right? doesn't work that way. There are consequences. Moses, over time, learned humility. When he talks in Deuteronomy chapter 8 about humility, it's from his experience. Because he did not start off a humble man. It doesn't come natural to most of us. It's something that we have to learn. Something that the Lord has to help us with. So that we can be emptied. So that we can be filled. So that we're willing to follow the word of God. That we're willing to look to him instead of ourselves. For how we're to live this life. Let me read to you from Numbers chapter 12. Moses was very humble, more so than anyone else on the face of the earth. He learned humility. And then chapter 12 goes on to say in verse 6, And he said, Hear my words. When there are prophets among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. Not so with my servant Moses. He's entrusted with all my house. With him I speak face to face clearly, not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. How do we come to know the Lord face to face? How are we so filled with His Spirit that we radiate with His presence? How do we begin to live the life that He calls us to? Because Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. That's why. When we learn that kind of humility... When we're so willing to be submitted to the Lord, that we are like Jesus, his child, that we are like Jesus, the mind that we take on is not even the one of a child, but a servant. And we empty ourselves. That's when our life can be truly transformed. That we can live this life that we say we want to live, filled with the Spirit of God, filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Bearing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. That's what He wants from us. One way we become this way, back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Look what Moses writes. Verse 3, He humbled you by letting you hunger, then by feeding you with manna, with which neither you nor your ancestors were acquainted, in order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. There's that verse. The clothes on your back did not wear out. Your feet did not swell these 40 years. What Moses is saying is, remember. Who is the source of everything about your life? Remember. Are you here because you created yourself? No, God created you. The talents, the abilities, the gifts you have, who gave those to you? The clothes you have on your back and the ornamentation that you wear, who provided so that you could have those? How you look, well, you're responsible for part of that, okay? And some of you may have invested a lot of money to get there. But God made you the way you are. Everything about us, when we remember our source, who gave us everything, who provides everything, if you're realistic and you're honest, you begin to say, everything I am and have is a gift from the Lord. And therefore, I need to honor Him. I need to serve Him. I need to use with stewardship everything He's given to me to glorify Him. Instead of thinking, it's all about me. I've done this on my own. I've provided for myself. I'm a self-made person. I look this way because I work on it. Which is everything that the world would tell you. And Moses says, no, remember. And as we said last week, you don't remember with nostalgia, oh, back then it was better. That's what the Israelites did in the wilderness. They thought back in Egypt, when they were in bondage, it was better. So we go back to the world's ways. Or you never grow out of that position. You never grow beyond. Instead of saying, God has given me all that I have and all that I am, I need to grow. I need to be a good steward. And I need to produce fruit. That's what he's saying to us. Look at verses 5 and 6. Know then in your heart that as a parent disciplines a child, so the Lord God disciplines you. Therefore, keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. The idea is the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The word discipline, the word disciple. It means we follow Him. It means that He disciplines us. It means that He gives us the discipline in order to be able to follow Him when we ask. But this life is meant to be a disciplined life. And it's so easy to fall into something else. God's bread, His provision, is not just for this world. When we really understand His provision, it's to nourish us. It's to transform us. You know, we're about to experience in just a few minutes, sharing communion together. The bread which the Lord provided. The manna from heaven. And it's Jesus Christ. That's what He says in John 6. It's meant to feed us. And it symbolizes that we take Him in internally. The bread fills us. The wine represents the Holy Spirit that's meant to transform us, to warm us to the Lord, to make us warm people towards each other. If we really understand God's provision. And Jesus even says in this context, you know, your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they died. The bread that I give is for eternal life. See, God's plan is to develop you in such a way that you're here for eternity. You're with Him for eternity. This particular verse that we're reading in Deuteronomy, it's when they're on the precipice of the promised land. And Moses is saying, look what God has in mind for you. This is what God has in mind for you. When Jesus died on the cross, He offered Himself as the bread from heaven for us. That He's saying, my goal for you is to take you to the promised land. That's my goal for you. That you understand that this is about eternity. And that I'm going to nourish you now for the journey. I'm going to take care of you so that you can come there with me. So that you can experience this promised land. And God has placed desires in us in such a way that we would seek after Him and we would see His provision for our needs. It's when those desires are corrupted by the world, or by our own flesh, or by Satan himself, that we try to take care of those desires in a worldly way, not his way. And we end up being corrupted. When we have desires, we need to turn to the Lord and say, what is this about? What is going on? What is this for? And how can I find your answer to what I'm seeking right now? How can I so empty myself that your solution, your word, your spirit is what provides for all that I need? You know, when you hear words like this, is the Holy Spirit just trying to draw you and say, follow me? Respond to my call. Live into my word. And will you walk away with a renewed sense of commitment? Or will you be that plant that really has no root and never produces fruit? Will you be that plant that allows the weeds The world to choke you in your faith. So often, we're willing to say, yes, Lord, but up to a point. Right? Yes, Lord, I'll do your will. Yes, Lord, I'll follow your commandments. Yes, Lord, I'll do it your way. But up to a point. Right? I don't really want to, like, go overboard with this stuff. I mean, I don't want to look too Christian. I mean, some people love to say, holy, holy. I don't want to look too holy, holy. So we're willing to take the step up to a point. But we really don't want to totally empty ourselves. You know, we want to kind of be like the other plants. And when we have fruit, we look weird. We look different than the other plants. See, but God's design and desire for us is that we are the plants that produce fruit. We are the ones that take serious His call in our lives. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You know, case in point, I know I've referred to this several times through the years, but I take the magazine, The Economist. I don't know how many of you see, have seen, or read The Economist. The Economist is filled with articles, and a lot of them are actually good articles that have to deal with what's going on in the world, and what's going on in our own country, and what's going on with the economy, and what's going on in different um, uh, businesses. You know, and, and it talks about, and actually talks about education. In different countries. In this particular issue, it says the dollar a week school, and it's talking about private schools in poor countries. You know, all the values that I see lifted up in The Economist have to do with the world, success, money, power, intelligence. Very few articles have to do with faith and character, I've noticed. See what can begin to happen in our lives. We can begin to think that this is what it's about. Instead of saying, it is my faith, it is my character, it is the fruit I bear, because the Lord lives in me that is most important. And Satan is vying for your soul. And there are weeds all around you. And your own nature, your own flesh, would pull you away from the Lord and cause you to not bear fruit. Remember, that's what He's about. He is about you bearing fruit with your life. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of other believers. The fruit of a transformed life and character. He is about fruit for you. I want to close by reading two verses that Jesus says in John chapter 6. The first is verse 41. Actually, this is the Jews speaking. Then the Jews began to complain about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. You will always hear the world complain about Jesus. In verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. The bread that I will give is for the life of the world. Is my flesh. Is his flesh. Jesus came to be a blessing to others. And my prayer for you is that the blessing you seek is not just for yourself. That you want to bless the Lord by your life, by glorifying him. That you want to bless others by the fruits you produce. That's what the church is supposed to be about. And my prayer for you this day as you go from this place is just think about what kind of plant am I? What kind of soil am I? Because it's the stock of wheat that has the most grain on it, the most fruit that is bowed down the lowest. It's the one that is the most humble. And that's how God will produce fruit in our lives and make us the church that he wants us to be. Please bow with me in prayer. Lord God, success the promised land in this world is often often about being worldly successful about living according to the values of this world which oftentimes are self-serving that we become like Moses before he was humbled that we begin to think of ourselves as above your commandments. We begin to think of ourselves even as God. And we serve ourselves. Lord, help us by the power of your Spirit to become like Moses over time. That we would become so meek that we know you face to face that we would become so meek that we would glow because of the power of your spirit in our lives and Lord as we come soon to partake of holy communion that you would remind us that Jesus came to give his life to give his life so that we might have life To empty his life so that we might be full. To rise again and return to you so that we might be filled with the Spirit and transformed by your grace. Lord, help us to be such a church. Help us to produce fruit that we might glorify you and bless others. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.